All right, so um, still finishing up this, this uh, series about raising godly kids. And can I just be honest with you as, as we close this out? This is the last week. Can I just be honest with you? Uh, this series was a bit, bit of a challenge for me. Dad said, hey, we're going to do this series. It's going to be on parenting. And I said, really? Because, see, I, can't, I, I have a, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old at home. And to be honest with you, just to be just real honest with you, I am so intimidated by parenting, it's not even funny. I, told, I just figured I'd be honest with you tonight. I'm here to talk to you about parenting, but I'm just going to lay it out there and let you know I'm as intimidated about parenting as anybody I've ever met. Because when God placed these two incredibly special people in my life, my two precious daughters, it, it was so huge to me, the idea of this incredible responsibility that's now part of my life. And I don't take it lightly. So can I just tell you tonight, this is not going to be my normal talk. I don't have a lot of funny stories. I want to workshop with you the number one thing that I'm concerned about as a parent. And I'm just being real transparent with you because I want to tell you this is not something I have figured out. This is something I want to talk to you about because it is so huge in my life that I want to get this. I really desperately want to make this part of my DNA as a parent, and I hope it'll be helpful for you tonight. But the way I want to start off the talk is I just want to go ahead and approach the big, um, you know, elephant in the room that a lot of times as parents we don't like to talk about. Um, but let's just go ahead and put it on out there, right? Let's just talk about it, right? And the big thing that I think we don't talk about a lot is we know that when our kids are little and in our house, we can tell them what to do. Have you, have you noticed this? It's okay. You can unscrew the halos. You know what I'm talking about, right? Come on. I know you've said this. You said, while you're under my roof, you have to follow my what? My rules. My roof, my rules. And see, now I know you have said that. Good. So I'm not the only one, right? You have to do it my way. And, and if, if your child says, why, what's the answer to why? Because I said so. And that ought to be good enough for you to do it. No excuses, no arguments, no discussion. Do it now, right? But the problem is, when your precious little bundle of joy is 19, no arguments, no discussion, do it now, doesn't really work. This is the big elephant in the room we don't like to talk about because we know that when they're little, we can tell them what to do. We can encourage them to do things. We can tell them if they want to live in our house, they will do it. But there is a certain stage at which that child transitions to a point where we can no longer tell them what to do. They're going to do what they choose to do. And that is scary. It's scary to know that that child that you've done your very best to raise at some point is going to find their own way in the world. They're going to make their own decisions. They're going to find, isn't this one scary? One of these days, I have a seven-year-old at home, and it's not going to be too long before, you know, 10 years, Lord, please let it be at least 10 years, 10 years, right, before she starts bringing home some hairy-legged, ugly-faced, um, 150 pounds and six foot of trouble on my doorstep, <laughs> expecting me to let him take my daughter out. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Don't make me cry. I'm, all, I'm, only, I'm only two minutes in here. He said, yes, it is. You know? <clears throat> Someday, my two little girls are going to pick two guys. Each of them are going to pick someone to spend the rest of their life with. Can I just be honest with you? That scares me. Because I don't get to pick that guy. 
right? They're going to pick a life's calling. I don't get to pick that for them. When they get to a certain age, they're going to start making a lot of moral decisions that I don't get to weigh in on. They're going to decide who their grown-up friends are, and I don't get a vote. So how do we deal with that? How do we impact our kids' decisions when they grow up? Well, here's what I want to tell you. What I'm going to talk about tonight, this is going to be earth-shattering for us. What if I could tell you that I'm going to give you the secret tonight to being able to impact every single one of those big decisions your, kids make, your kid makes? What if I could tell you a key to being involved in how your spouse picks a mate? What if I could tell you a key to being involved in how your, how your child makes those decisions, those moral decisions as an adult? I'm going to give you that key, and then hopefully we can, we can break it down a little bit, and maybe it'll be helpful for you. I want to give you a, a, a verse... And um, actually, you know what, I, let's, let's, let's do this. Let me start this way. If we think about the major decisions that we make in life, and you, we're talking about how your child's going to make decisions later on in life, let's do the math backwards for a minute, okay? Let's do it this way. How did you make the major decisions in your life, right? How did you decide who to marry? How did you decide, I don't know, when to buy your first new car? How did you decide, you know, let's even break it down to small stuff. How did you decide what to have for breakfast this morning? Right? Isn't it interesting that the decisions that we make in our life are largely a matter of what we have developed a taste for? Have you ever noticed that? The person that you married, to a large extent, you married them because you had developed a taste for that kind of person. That kind of person was attractive to you. There were things about that person that you had developed a liking for. And because you had developed a liking for those sort of traits, they came together bundled in a package as your spouse, and you accepted them as, as the mate for the rest of your life. Or um, even what you have for breakfast this morning, you know? A lot of times those decisions, I mean, did you have coffee this morning? Who, who had coffee this morning for breakfast, with your breakfast? See, look, yeah. So at some point you developed a taste for coffee, right? And see, for me personally, with breakfast... I had a Coke, right? Because I have an, a strange, an unholy addiction to this stuff that cannot be explained no matter how many websites you look on about soda pop addictions, right? I, I make decisions in my life based off of for my taste for this stuff. How many of us know this? If you have a significant taste for this like I do, when you pass the soda pop aisle at the store when you're doing your weekly grocery shopping, you'll pay an exorbitant and unreasonable price for this stuff so you can take it home and have it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's ridiculous, right? And yet, I still do it. I will do it this week, right? Because I've developed a taste for this stuff. Here's what I want to share with you. The things in my life that I've developed a taste for have inspired me to make decisions that impact the rest of my life. And what your kids develop a taste for in the years that they are in your household will impact for the rest of their lives how they will make decisions. It is very important that we spend a lot of time tonight talking about how do your kids um, develop a taste for the right things. I, um, I guess a, a good question to ask at this point is... Um, did, did you ever develop a taste for something you shouldn't have developed a taste for? <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, something you wished you hadn't developed a taste for? When I was in college, I did not have a car. I was one of those. Right? <laughs> one of those kids who walked around town and bummed a ride off of everybody else. You know, people avoided me in the hallway of my dorm. 
because they knew I would ask them for a ride somewhere, you know? So it's important to recognize that there's sort of this, like, survivor mentality of a student who doesn't have a car and can't get off campus. You begin to scavenge food wherever it happens to be, you know? You begin to look for opportunities to take advantage of whatever's there. So my roommate, a senior with a truck, right, he got these things called pyrolines, I think they're called, from Sam's Club, and they were wafers with chocolate in the middle of it, and he used to eat them with, a, he, would, he had a French press, he was a very fancy person, he had a French press for coffee, and, and so I tasted one of them, and here's where I went on, I made a mistake, I should never have tasted it, because once I tasted it, I became quite aware of the fact that I developed an instant taste for these things, right? But I didn't have, alas, I didn't have a car, right? And so I began to justify the fact that he was my roommate, after all, to a certain extent, what was mine was his, and what was his was mine, you know, we didn't have a verbal agreement to that effect, but I felt like it was pretty much understood, right? So from time to time, I might have taken, a, a, you know, one of his little wafers, but with the complete intention of replacing it, right? But you have to understand, I can't get off campus very often, right? So I continue to take these wafers, you know, a little bit of time, a little bit of time, and I noticed at a certain point that when we started, he had like 50 of them, and now he was down to like five, Right? So I bummed a ride to Sam's and got a whole container of them, and I counted carefully, and I took the exact number it would take to refill him to a full, you know, can, right? So I put them all in there, right? Assuming that he would just figure, you know, that some lovely person had come and put there. But the interesting thing was that day in chapel, I went to a Christian college, that day in chapel, we heard about Elisha and the widow with the oil and the meal, where the oil and the meal just kept showing up, Every day, he'd come back, and it would just be more, you know? And he walked into the room, and he opened it up, and he looked out, and he set it right back down and ran back. <laughs> this is what you miss out on when you don't go to Christian college. First John gives us a really good idea of what we need to be developing a taste for. First John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not... Love the world or anything in the world. And if anybody loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world. Now watch this list. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now what is the Bible telling us? The Bible is telling us it's so crucially important that as God followers, we do not develop a taste for the world that we live in. The Bible's saying don't, don't develop a taste for what's here, right? The Bible's saying you're going to have that impulse to say, I see this and I want it. And you have that, that sort of impulse of jealousy or, or desire to have, and, and you'll develop a taste for it. And then how many of us know that once we develop a taste for that, we always want the next thing? It's always something new, something more interesting, and we always want the next thing. Or the pride of life. How many of us know someone in our life who's become addicted to seeing themselves as more important than everybody else? Have you ever met one of these people? They see themselves as the most important person in the world, and it's become an addiction for them. It's become a taste. They have a taste for seeing themselves as important. The Bible says we're not to develop a taste for these things. In fact, it says all of these things come not from the Father, but from the world. It says if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Here's what's really important for us to get, and this is important as we start to think about how this applies to our kids. If you have a taste for the world, you won't have a taste for God. 
If you develop that desire, that taste for the world, you won't have the desire for God. So I don't know about you, but for my kids, I want them to have a taste for the good stuff. I don't want them to have a taste for the bad stuff. I want them to, to have a taste, a desire. A, 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 I, I want to introduce them to a desire for good things. Let, let me read this to you out of Galatians 5, and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, these are the things that come from God. Is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now look at this, and against these things there is no law. And one of the things that my dad has said over the years, and I've loved that he pointed this out, the statement there is no law basically just says, you can't have too much of this. You know, you've heard that people say that you can have too much of a good thing. Well, this is a list of things that you cannot have too much of. Uh, You can have as much of these. If you want to develop a taste for these things, you can have as much of it as you want. How many of us would give anything to know that these qualities would define our kids for the rest of their lives? I mean, joy is, a, is an unsinkable nature, a willingness to find happiness in the middle of unhappy circumstances. Peace is an ability to rest in God's goodness that the Bible tells us is better than understanding. Forbearance is a kind understanding of the imperfection of others and a willingness to extend second chances. Goodness is a lifestyle of integrity and a desire to honor God. Faithfulness is a refusal to quit even when circumstances are daunting. Gentleness is a refusal, a refusal to be harsh even when the situation calls for it. And self-control is the ability to keep our behavior within appropriate boundaries in order to achieve a desired outcome. How many of us would like to see our kids live their life with a taste for those things? Matthew 5, 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger, do they develop a taste for, and thirst for rightness, for they will be filled. The Bible's saying if, if you can develop a taste for being right, for rightness, for following God, God will see to it that you are filled in that desire. Okay, so moving on. I want to share a couple other things here with you about how do you get your children to develop a taste for the good stuff? How do you get your kids to develop a taste for the right stuff? I want to give you three just really quick thoughts to just rapid fire these out for you. But here's three things that I think probably are very helpful. First is this. You need to choose the right stuff for yourself. First thing, you got to choose the right stuff for yourself. How many of us have had this conversation? Do you, if you have more than one kid, how many of us have had this conversation with our two kids? We tell the older kid, hey, you need to straighten up because your little sister, your little brother does what? They look up to you, don't we? We say, you don't understand. You may not see it now. It may not, you may not even think that you're on their radar screen, but they look up to you. They think you're something. And when you misbehave, they see that, and they, they develop a taste for it. When you behave, they see that, and they develop a taste for it. Hey, parents, it's time for us to take a, a spoonful of our own advice and recognize that our kids look up to us. Your kids think daddy is pretty cool, and they think mommy is pretty cool, and even though you may have your times, and you may have your discussions, and your difficult moments, at the end of the day, they like you, they look up to you, and they want to be like you. So if you want your kids to develop a taste for the right stuff, one of the very first things that you can do is you can develop a taste for the right stuff yourself. You can decide that you are going to make a choice to live that way. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says this. And by the way, Ephesians 5 and 6 is like gold. There is just, I mean, 
if you're struggling in relationships, Ephesians 5 and 6 just ought to be, I mean, you, you should, you know, print it out of your computer and put it on your mirror so you see it every morning when you get up. Ephesians 5 and 6 is huge. So I'm going to go to verse 15. It says this, so be careful how you live. Another translation says be very careful, and it's a better rendering. Be very careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. So how do you do that? How do you not live like fools, like, but like those who are wise? Well, it says make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. See, what's important is that as parents, we have so many opportunities. I'm just telling you, this is intimidating to me. This is intimidating stuff to me. You realize how many moments I have to spend with my daughters? How many incredible opportunities I have to show them that dad is sold on the right stuff. Dad is interested in living his life with the right stuff. I'm not interested in the wrong stuff. I'm interested in the right stuff. I have all these opportunities to live that out in front of my girls. And I can tell you I'm not good at that. I dropped the ball in this area. More times than I wish to admit. But folks, let me tell you, this is an area where we all, have to, we all have to shape up a little bit in this area and say, I have all these opportunities. And the Bible says, make the most of every opportunity. If you have an opportunity and you have your kids with you, that is the time to show them honesty. That is the time to show them forgiveness. That is the time to show them, hey, what I mean is when you're at the restaurant and the waiter does a poor job and they don't take care of your table, it means showing grace to that waiter because your kid is watching. That's an opportunity for you to show them that you're sold on the right stuff. Hey, when the, police, when the policeman pulls you over because you're doing two, three, four miles over the speed limit, right? You being respectful to that officer and being kind to that officer and showing them the proper response in front of your kids, you do that because this is an opportunity to show them that you're bought into the right stuff. You want them to be bought into the right stuff. They're watching you. They look up to you. They need to see you bought into the right things. Two weeks ago, I talked to you about imitating God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. So live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. We talked a couple weeks ago about funneling God's influence into your kids, but now it's more than funneling. We're taking it a whole step further, and we're saying that what you choose for yourself will likely impact what your kids develop a taste for. You don't believe me? Think about all the things that you're into that your kids have followed you into. The things that you do, the activities you're involved in that your kids have sort of picked up on and as they've gotten older, they've sort of just followed in your footsteps. So, wow. Okay, gonna have to hurry. Choose the right stuff for yourself. All right, step number two. Step number two. Create an environment where the right stuff is hard to miss. Create an environment where the right stuff is hard to miss. I was talking to uh, a major league coffee drinker. Now, there are leagues of coffee drinkers, right? You have the miners, right? These are the people who, who don't drink coffee for a living, but they, they drink a lot, right? And then you have kind of the intermediate leagues. They're working their way up to pro. And then you get into the pro-level leagues. Now, these people have coffee on an IV, right? And this would be one of those major leaguer kind of folks, right? And so I said, man, 
how did you, I'm doing a message this weekend about how you develop an appetite, develop a taste for the right things. How did you develop a taste for coffee? I said, maybe, you know, I said, did your parents take you to Starbucks a lot when you were a kid? And of course, this is an older person who laughed at me because he's thinking like Starbucks was around when I was a kid. And I said, well, tell me really what happened. And I could see his eyes go back in time. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, I would wake up about 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I would saunter out of my room, and my mom and my dad would be sitting at the kitchen table talking, reading, which, by the way, this is probably something that most of us have missed out on marriage. Sounds to me like a good habit, but they're sitting there talking, reading, and he said the aroma of that coffee would just smack you right in the face as you walked in the room. And he said after so many years of walking out of my bedroom and into the kitchen and having that overwhelming aroma of coffee hit me, I decided, man, I should try that. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is how we develop a taste for stuff in in life. If there is this incredible aroma of joy in our house for our kids to sample, after a certain period of time, they're going to pick it up and try it for themselves. If there is this incredible aroma of peace in our house, after a while, our kids are going to pick that up and they're going to make it part of their life. But folks, the scary part of this is if there is an incredible aroma of anger in our house, Kids will pick that up too, and they'll try it for themselves. If there's an aroma of hatred or hurt, they'll pick it up, they'll try it for themselves. If everything they hear is yelling, eventually they'll pick that up and they'll start yelling. Folks, it is what we, is the aroma in the house that we provide for our kids. It is that environment that says, I don't want the good stuff to be hard for you to miss. I want, I know the bad stuff will be easy for you to find because how many of us know in the world that we live in, if our kids want to find bad stuff, it's everywhere. So we're saying, I I know the bad stuff won't be hard for you to find, but I guarantee you in this house, because I love you and I love God and I want you to be the right kind of kid in this house, the good stuff won't be hard to miss. We're going to put it everywhere. Step three is this. Provide experiences that increase exposure to the right stuff. If you want your kids to develop a love for camping, what do you think you ought to do with them? Take them camping. You betcha. It's really, you know, here, kids, read these books about camping. Once you read these books, let me tell you what, you'll be a happy camper, right? You know, here, read, read this stuff. I've, I've prepared for you a virtual online experience of camping, right? Hey, Dad, when are we going to go camping? Outdoors? I don't think so. There's bugs out there and stuff, you know. I don't want to step on too sensitive of an area. But sometimes we can be guilty of doing the same thing. Here, kids, here's a devotional book for you guys to read at night. We think we're really doing really good. Here's a devotional book for you to read. Here, I'll I'll take you to church. And by the way, we're so thankful that we have so many parents bringing their kids to church. That is an awesome thing. But it's not enough to just drop them off at the doorstep and say, I hope you develop a love for that, right? Hope it's good for you. I'm not really interested in being there, but hope you have a good time, you know. That's why we do things like family effects around here. When you see family effects coming up and we're saying, we want the whole family, the whole 
family, bring everybody and come and experience what's happening in your kid's life. That's why we have the little parent cue app for the phone to give you things to talk about during the week with your kids and to discuss and, and areas in which that you and your kids can develop and what they're learning about in kids' world because we want you to do it together. And in doing so, you're providing experiences that give them a chance to really taste what it is that we're talking about. All right. I have about 20 minutes of talk I need to give you in about eight minutes, okay? So we're going to hurry through this really quickly. Here's our verse. This is the verse I want to give you. And this is a verse that's always intimidated me, but I think I can explain it a little better than what it used to mean to me earlier. Proverbs 22.6, great verse. It says, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not uh, turn from it. Okay, so what does that start children off? on the right path mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the word that you see there was used of, when it says start children off, it's the, use of a word, it's the word that would be used when a mother would take crushed dates, right? And take the crushed dates and put it on the palate of a brand new infant to teach that child to have the reflex to nurse, right? And so this mom is doing something to initiate this child into doing what is best for it. It is, it is developing, that child is, de, is developing a taste because the mom is introducing that child to something. And that is exactly what the Bible is telling us to do. The Bible is saying, look, you want your kids to do things that are in their best interest, then you get them started in that. You initiate that. You, you introduce them to what is best for them. And in doing so, you can have an impact on their decisions. So, three things you can introduce your kid to that will change their life forever. I told you, doing these three things, I believe, will help you impact your child for the rest of their life. Three major areas, three major things that you can really impact your child's life. And here's the first thing. The first thing you want to introduce your kids to is a craving for an authentic connection with God. An authentic connection with God. I want to give you, I'm going to give you these three things. I'm also going to give you three verses. Now, if you're a, if you're a person who likes to memorize verses, I'm going to give you these references because these are three, three things and three verses that if you memorize them, they will help you frame, frame up how you live your life with your kids. And sharing these verses with your kids would not be a bad idea either. Okay, so here I'm going to give you this first one, all right? Here's the first passage. This is about a craving for an authentic connection with God. Psalm 84, verses 10 and 11, where the Bible says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Now look, here's where we're going. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What is the principle you're teaching your kids here? You're teaching them that humility with God is better than what you want without him. If you can teach your kids that humility with God is better than what you want without God, you will teach them to live a life where decision-making is not difficult and where they can live a life that honors God. Think about it. If you have them understanding that humility with God is better than what you want without it, what will happen when they get the opportunity to have premarital sex with someone? 
because it's what they want at the moment. But if you have taught them that humility with God is better than what you want without it, they'll be able to stand strong and say no because they've understand it. They've developed a taste for the fact that there is such a thing as an authentic relationship with God. How did they develop that taste? Well, they watched mom and dad. Mom and dad had an authentic relationship with God. There was an aroma in the house of what authentic relationship with God is like. And so because of that and because they've had experiences where they really met up with God, they can say, I know that humility with God is better than what I want without God, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to turn you down. If you want it to be real for your kids, though, if you want them to have an authentic relationship with God, if you want it to be real for your kids, it has to be real for you. Psalm 513 through 16 says, it has to be real in front of, excuse me, it has to be real in who, in who you are in front of others. Psalm 513 through 16 says this, let me tell you why you are here. And anytime Jesus tell, says, I'm going to tell you why you're on this earth, this is a good time to listen, right? Let me tell you why you're here. You are here to be a salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in this world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm going to put you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people. Okay, this is where we're talking about developing a taste in them. You will prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Folks, I don't know any other way to say this. And again, I told you before we even started tonight, I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you. But if we do not live a genuine, authentic relationship with God out in front of the people in our lives, our friends, even, even when it's just acquaintances, if we're not clear that we have a relationship with God in front of other people, then our kids will believe that a God relationship is something that happens in private and is not important enough to take public. If it's going to be real with our kids, it has to be real first with us. Okay, secondly, it has to be real when you respond to disappointment. In 1 Peter, the Bible's talking about what happens when somebody's mean to you. So you would think that God would be giving us a good response about how to, how to come back, set, you know, set some boundaries, deal with what it is that they're doing. But look at this, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp tongue sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing, and by the way, the old adage from mom, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? Did you know that was in the Bible? Here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your work worth. God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked, but he turns his back on those who do evil things. Folks, it's important that when we go through personal disappointment, we show an authentic relationship by, with God by how we respond. I'm going to have to run really quickly. Here's the last one. It has to be real when you decide where to invest your resources. Our kids are watching what we will take our wallet out for. Yes? <laughs> Did you ever notice that? <laughs> Our kids are watching what we'll pony up for. What, what will you pull out the cash for? They're interested in that, right? And it's important that we recognize that our kids are paying attention to whether or not we invest in our relationship with God, right? Matthew 6, 21 says this, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. 
right? This is where the Bible is telling us that love is a function of investment. If you ever hear of somebody tell you that they fell out of love, you can just tell them, um, no, I don't believe in falling out of love. You just fell out of investment because that's what it really is. Love is, a, love is a function of investment. Investment comes first. Love comes second. So what do you want your kids to love? What do you want your kids to desire? Whatever you want them to desire, invest in it. Whatever it is that you want your kids to be uh, passionate about, invest in that. Which, by the way, I wasn't going to cover this because I'm skipping over a bunch of things, but can I just tell you, our, our kids are watching where we invest our time. Every parent in the room that's my age or a little older, let me just talk to you for a second. If you're in this room and you're relatively close to my age, let me tell you something. We are going to get old. I know you don't believe me now, but we are. You can go back in time and you can say, Jonathan told me I was going to get old, and, you know, I'll be old, so I'll appreciate that you're, you know, you write me a card and let me know that you understand now that you're getting old. Anyway, you're going to get old. So let me tell you this. If you want, little precious, to take you to the ear, nose, and throat doctor when you're 80, you go to the soccer game when they're 8. Because they'll learn how to invest their time from you. If you show them that you invest your time and what's important to them, even at the cost, even at the expense of other things you have going on, they'll do that for you. You're teaching them how to invest their time. All right, secondly, two points in two minutes. Let's see if we can do it. And so the first thing is a craving for an authentic relationship with God. The second thing is a craving for healthy relationships with other people. Here's the, the, the anchor verse I want to give you. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. I had to learn this when I was a kid. My parents made me learn this verse. It wouldn't be a bad idea for your kids to learn this verse too. Bad company corrupts good character. You tell your kids, do you know what it's like to go on a mile-long hike and you feel like you've made up all that ground? What the Bible is saying is that in developing good character, it's a journey. It's a hike. You're going to have to work hard to develop good character. And the Bible is telling us that making a bad friendship is like putting you back at the starting line. Making a bad friendship is like making you start all over again. And I'm, I'm really skipping past a lot, but I just want to tell you this. One of the most important things we can communicate to our kids is not, not everybody qualifies for their friendship. It is important that they be careful and cautious with who they pick to be their friends. I, I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you about something that I'm not very good at right now, okay, because I've let it lapse. So can I tell you that on, on the surface? I've already told you I'm not good at this lately. But when, years ago, when, uh, Cheyenne and I, my, my seven-year-old, Cheyenne and I started a tradition. I would take her on a daddy-daughter date night, right? And we go someplace, but it was always very important to me, and, and now that I've said this, I really feel convicted. I've got to do this again super soon, right, because I've let it lapse. But it was very important to me that I open the door for her. It was very important to me that I, I present her with a flower. It was very important to me that I do all the things that I expect any young man who takes her out on a date to do. Because she now knows what it's like when somebody treats her the way she deserves to be treated. So when some joker treats her any other way, I expect her to send him packing. <laughs> and we'll see how that works. <laughs> All right, here's the last one. 
The last one is a craving for true achievement. And when I say true achievement, what I mean is achievement that's in line with our skill set. Let me read this verse to you out of 1 Peter 4, verse 10. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. What is God saying in this passage? He's saying, listen, your child, and I don't care what they tell you in an intro psych class, okay, that you go to, your child is not born as a blank slate. God has already given your child gifts, talents, and abilities when you receive that child. And part of your job as a parent is to find out what those gifts are and to encourage them to go out and to use those gifts for God, to provide them opportunities to sharpen those skills and to help them understand what things are a waste of time so that they can experience true success. I'm already a minute into overtime, but I want to read this to you really quickly. I asked my dad to write a paragraph for me that I wanted to share with you tonight because honestly, the lady that I want to talk to you about, I did not know. She died when I was very little. There's a lady who's made a profound impact on my life, and that's my great-grandma, Hoover. And I wanted to read, I asked my dad if, she would, if, if he would write a brief statement about her that I could share with you because I think it really bears on what we're talking about tonight. My dad says this, Grandma Hoover was a game changer whose life continues to impact the course of generations. By normal standards, her life had every reason to fail. Her dad deserted the family when she was a child, leaving her to fend for herself in a home with an embittered, emotionally detached mother and two younger siblings to care for. Somehow, in spite of this disaster of a home, she met Jesus and fell in love with him. Married at 16 to my 17-year-old unbelieving grandfather, she soon bore my dad, the first of her nine children. And even though she was the product of a dysfunctional family and married to a man unsympathetic with her faith, she managed to lead all nine of her kids to a relationship with Jesus. Three of her sons became pastors, which, by the way, my, my grandpa Hoover was pastor of the same church in Texas for just short of 50 years. Three of her daughters sang in a Christian music group. One of her sons was a music professor in a Bible college, and all 23 of her grandchildren are believers, and several, several are in ministry. To my knowledge, the same is true in the fourth generation. Every time I stand at her grave in South Texas, I marvel to think, how could one person make so much difference? I read that because I know there's somebody sitting in this room who said, you know, Jonathan, you just don't understand how much I'm up against. You don't understand what I'm up against in my family. Maybe it's a blended home. Maybe the, my marriage is split up, and I'm just hanging on for dear life by my fingernails. It's just not easy, and I know it's not easy. I can totally understand that. But just because you're going through a less-than-ideal situation, my great-grandmother stands as proof that if you work hard to give your kids a taste for God, you can impact your family for generations to come. I don't even know this lady. I never had the opportunity to meet her. But I am here on this platform tonight because of her life. And you can make a decision tonight to impact your world for generations to come just by saying, I want to put that taste in my kid's mouth to follow God. That is my main goal for them. Thank you for listening tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of kids. I just pray that you'd help those of us who are parenting to do a good job at raising kids the way that you want us to. Father, help none of us to become proud or lifted up and thinking that our way is right. But Father, always let us use your guide as a check to whether or not we're doing the right thing.